You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee and Paul Doroshenko of Acumen Law Corporation. Today we're coming to you from Arlington, Texas. I wanted to say Dallas, but we're slightly outside of Dallas. It's a suburb of Dallas, um, where we have been taking a seminar for the last week, a very serious science seminar on blood uh, drug and alcohol testing. Yes, and I've been enjoying the uh, the seminar here in uh, Arlington, Texas, and uh, and welcome. Uh, thanks, thanks to uh, y'all for joining us today. <laughs> We've heard a lot of y'alls as our in our time here. It's quite uh, it's quite lovely and endearing to hear people say that because it's a. I gotta say that one guy from Georgia had the nicest accent I've ever heard. Oh yeah, some of these southern lawyers, it's um, it, it feels kind of like a it's a, a he TV show like or something. Like a southern gentleman so, out of a movie. So smooth, it's uh, remark- <laughs> remarkable. Yeah, I was like, what? You want mm. me to go live with you? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> In Georgia, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, if you could just talk to me all day, I'd yeah. Um, anyway, uh, never mind that. The point uh, of bringing that up, Paul, is I thought we should share a little bit. I mean, without giving away the farm, on what we've done here and what we've learned. Well, it's been fascinating. So this course is a very intense course on the science behind blood testing. So. Um, we were looking at um, at you know the, really from the the time that the blood is taken from an individual in a uh, uh, impaired driving case, uh, either um, alcohol impaired driving or drug impaired driving, uh, t- drawn from that uh, that person and then uh, ultimately transferred to the lab, and then the whole lab processes. And there was a real focus here on the lab process. We spent a few days uh, in the lab with. Um, really actually the sort of the top scientists in North America um, who are researching this recent PhDs uh, PhDs uh, working on the uh, on the most advanced equipment that's out there it's all been provided by uh, uh, by one company that that produces it and they sort of using are using this Shimatsu. as their test lab using it as their test lab so it was do you think a if we like put incredible in a opportunity for, for Shumatsu in the podcast they'll mm-hmm. send us like a, a GCMS well uh, I, I'm happy to give them a plug because I, it was the most <laughs> impressive equipment you could imagine and you know working with all the new uh, and high-end equipment was uh, was exciting and interesting and I know that uh, in crime labs RCMP labs and all these other labs they don't have that uh, super equipment that they happen to have here at the University of Texas at Arlington. And if you do want to check it out, um, we do have some videos and photos on our Instagram page. It's Acumen Law on Instagram. Yeah. So that was a, has been exciting and interesting. And of course, then we had uh, uh, classes with lawyers who deal with these matters just to figure out how we understand the analysis, explain the analysis, and um, and use that information uh, in our uh, day-to-day basis of defending our clients. So it's been a great course. It's been a very interesting course. One of the most interesting things for me, whenever we do these really focused things, is that we get to spend a lot of time talking to American lawyers. Yeah, and it's it's definitely been really valuable 
talking to American lawyers to understand, you know, the different legal systems and also the different motivations for why they do things the way that they do them. Do do you find that? Yeah, I I think the thing that I always get out of it is they 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 will come at something from a different angle because they're dealing with it at a from a different way for their aspect they, what what is required to be proven mm-hmm. uh, in their cases and so they'll come at it a little bit different angle sometimes it's not very useful for me but forcing my brain to stretch and think about it in their way allows me to come back to you know our police reports our courts our you know our process that we use in in Canada uh, for impaired driving investigations to come back at it differently and i often end up picking up things that i never picked up before uh, in our investigations. It's, it's interesting because one of the things that we focused on here in some of the workshops that we were doing was storytelling. And then as I was, I was doing an IRP hearing the very next day, and I'm, I'm talking about the facts with, with the adjudicator. I'm trying to explain, you know, my client side of the story and my brain is going, Hey, remember those storytelling techniques? And I thought, okay, well, well try it. Yeah. <laughs> I, How did you I, feel about it? It felt different. Yeah. It's not what I, you know, it's not what I normally do. And, you know, there was one of the workshops we had that sign on the wall that was like, lawyers like to sacrifice emotion in favor of cold legal analysis. And I love me some cold legal analysis. Yeah, I know. The, um, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. The one thing that I had to do, which was... uh, surprising for me was uh, opening to a jury. So you have to understand, I mean, we're impaired driving lawyers and uh, the likelihood of us having to run a, a trial that we feel is appropriate to be before a jury <laughs> is not very high. Uh, happy to do it if necessary. But, um, you know, in the United States, the vast majority of DUI trials are jury trials. So they spend a lot of time focused on the jury and you know how to get that information out in front of the jury and how to present in front of the jury and and um, you know the the it, it's pretty sophisticated people have thought about it a lot uh, there's lots of different ways you could analyze it like it's not if you if you look at the way that we're doing it here it's not maybe quite what you would hope that it would be but as we go through it and we um, and we deal with the uh, discussion of it, I had the opportunity to do an opening to a jury just, you know, on the fly. And uh, I was surprised. That I wasn't in your group, so I, was, I didn't see I it. I was surprised. I, I was expecting people, people were invited to interrupt whenever, just to give uh, feedback and everything. And mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, the crowd was silent. And I was wondering, are they just silent because they want me to hurry up and get through it? Or why are they silent? And apparently I did very well. Everybody thought that that was a, I was a natural talent. Uh, <laughs> they said, you're a natural talent and you've been holding this back and you, you should be doing jury trials and you should come to the States and help us. And well, I was, that was, that I was, was, I was not, surprised. not the reaction I got. I, I think I got, uh, I scared everyone in the room in the cross-examination exercise. Mm. They interrupted me and they said, now... How do y'all feel about that? And I was just like, oh, shit, I've done it really poorly. I got a lot of feedback from that. I wasn't in the room when you did that, but lawyers were coming up to me for the day after that um, and saying the same thing. I, they've never seen anything like that. They've never seen a witness sort of ripped apart like that. And here it is. A, here poor, it is. It's, 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 a, poor, it's, a, like, it's a mock trial. Or no, no, PhD. She was a, she just, she was a, a postdoc. postdoc. Yeah. She was a postdoc. She's never testified on anything <clears throat> before. Not even a U.S. citizen <laughs> coming here, volunteering her time to help us out. And yeah, it was a total bit sure. <laughs> Kyla, Kyla ripped her apart. But everybody said it was, uh, it was, they said they were coming up to me and saying, wow, it was like, 
like watching TV. It was like watching TV lawyers, CSI. Uh, so everyone was uh, was mightily impressed with that, and uh, everybody kept yeah. saying, "What a gee, what a talent you've got! That, that you've got this other lawyer working with you." I was like, "Yes, I talent." Know. So long as you don't put me in front of a jury. Yeah, well, I taught you everything you know. That's true. No, you that's did. not true. I taught you something, and then you took everything I taught you and took it one step further. So anyway, the, there is a huge value, though, besides just what we take from coming here and talking to these other lawyers and learning about it. And I think that's the huge resource network that we've developed yeah. by doing this. Yeah, we've got lawyers all across the states. I mean, we've been helping lawyers in Canada for a long time. Uh, and I've been helping lawyers in Washington State, you know, even a decade ago. But um, we're at the point now where we deal with all of these lawyers uh, across the United States who are wonderful. Um, smart and, people. Yeah, smart, and we get all sorts of information from them, and they get, you know, quality information from us, and we share our discussion. And, and that's really um, been been fantastically useful for us in our practice to get the results, you know, we want for our clients. And, and in cases where, you know, had we not... Had we not known about things that we learned here, we wouldn't have recognized the defense uh, that our client could have. Right. And uh, I, I'm always so impressed at the amount of like experience and knowledge that these people have. And so I did this interview, and we're going to play it next, um, with a lawyer named Joe McGrath, who practices in Richmond, Virginia. He's the Richmond traffic lawyer. And I was like, hey, wait, we have a Richmond traffic office. Yeah. Um, but he is a Richmond, Virginia traffic lawyer, and he's been doing this since 1980. Yeah, he's um, fantastic. I think so, he's 67 years old or something like that. And yeah, he's sharp he's as could going. be and, yeah. and a great so, lawyer. So. Um, I just want to cut to, sorry, Paul, but you're out of, you're out of the picture now. Um, cut to the interview that I did with, uh, with Joe so everyone can hear just how interesting he really is. All right, and today we're here with Joe McGrath from Richmond, Virginia. Joe is a very experienced impaired driving, or DUI as they call it there, lawyer. He also does traffic cases and um, personal injury, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, um, so Joe, tell us a little bit about how you got into law to begin with. Well, um, my older brother was an attorney. I graduated from college with a degree in English literature. Um, I went to visit him and hung out for a while, and he and uh, and I was going to teach literature at the time. There was not a terribly many uh, literature um, teaching positions open, so I hung around Richmond, Virginia, with him. I was admitted by the Virginia State Bar to read law. Uh, what which what is, does read law mean? Well, that's the old practice of um, becoming a lawyer in Virginia, as it was. Mm, is Back it like an a, apprenticeship? It's an apprenticeship, yeah, oh, certainly. Yeah. So you and, could just skip law school and do an apprenticeship. Well, you could at the time. I'm not. I'm not currently up on what the present requirements are. But at, in 1976, when I started to do that, um, you have to have an undergraduate degree. You have to be approved by the Virginia State Bar in order to do that. And the attorney that you are um, assigned to. Uh, has to have a number of years in practice and have a library and such like that. And so I was okay. fortunate to have to do that through my older brother. So did you ever go to law school then? I did not. Wow. I don't think I've ever met a lawyer who didn't go to law school. That's amazing. Well, I'm, <laughs> it's tough. I mean, it's it's a different environment. But Do you find, like, it's 
do do your clients know that about you? Not not generally. I don't know that. And someone's asked me where I went to law school over the, over the last couple of years, other than you. Um, <laughs> You're but like, I, can't. I went to the law school of the streets. <laughs> right. Yeah. It is. It is sort of like that. But fortunate for me that his practice was was where I wanted to be. I wanted to do a similar type of. He was a he was a uh, prosecutor. Okay. And then he left the prosecutions uh, prosecutor's office and opened his own practice and handle the criminal defense and personal injury, and that's currently what I do. So how did you shift into impaired driving then? Well, I've been doing that for a good 20 years, and I shifted to defending those charged with drunk driving in the state of Virginia um, out of a desire to um, try more cases. Okay. And um, they're fascinating. um, Each case is different, Um, and... um, uh, it's just uh, for me. It's a more a, uh, a more exciting area of the law. And drug people are funny, so they stay interesting. <laughs> Every case is different. <laughs> um, you told me something that just blew my mind about the state of the law in Virginia when it came to drunk driving cases. When you started practicing, do you want to uh, share that? Sure. When I started practicing law in 1980, and my recollection—I could be wrong about this—but my recollection was the limit for alcohol um, was a 0.15. In other words, if you were a 0.15 either through a blood or breath test, um, you were, um, that, was the, that was the legal limit. So you would then be committing the misdemeanor of driving under the influence. And, that's then as, crazy. and as, as the years went on, um, the state legislature reduced it to 0.110. And then the next jump was a 0.108. And it's still 0.08 it's now. It's 0.08 now, but there's, there's federal um, pressure was it harder? Like when it was 0.15, was it harder to win? Because, I mean, at that point, you're pretty drunk. Um, well, things were a lot different back then. Um, the, the, the court had a lot of discretion what they could actually do with a case. Right. Um, <clears throat> but as, as the years have gone by, the discretion of the court has been limited by the legislature. Do you so you've seen this this transition and this is something that we're dealing with up in Canada as well this transition from the courts having huge amounts of discretion to being super limited by legislation right. do you think that does the legal system a disservice or do you think it's good for the legal system I haven't seen it to be terribly good for the legal system in, in different ways we have judges we have of course everything anytime you're limiting the discretion of the court um, you're limiting what you can do for your client, and every client has a particular um, background and particular needs that you as an attorney want to fulfill, but you're limited by what the law now um, requires. What um, What are the penalties that a person would get in Virginia if they got convicted of DUI? Okay. First, first offense DUI is a class one misdemeanor. It's the same class as an assault or, or, or petty larceny. Okay. And We'd the, call those summary offenses in Canada. Right. Well, these are um, criminal offenses that stay on your record, okay. cannot be expunged. You can't get like a pardon or anything? Um, you can get a governor's pardon after some years, but it's another process altogether. And of course, that's at the discretion of the governor. Right. Um, the first offense DUI um, typically is, uh, again, the court has, has some mandatory legislative imposed penalties. One is a minimum fine of $250, um, a, license, a license loss for 12 months. Um, and is that just in Virginia or is that? The, 
this that is, U.S. wide? No, this is just Virginia. Okay. Uh, many, many. States so you could are, go get like a license in a neighboring no, state. No, not okay. usually because <laughs> we have an interstate compact. So if okay. one state uh, suspends your license, another state's going to honor that. Right. Um, so there's a two hundred fifty dollar fine. There is mandatory suspension of, of license for twelve months. There's a required drug and alcohol class that you have to take in Virginia called the Alcohol Safety Action Program. Those are the three mandatory things that the court has to do. Now, if the blood alcohol content is a 0.15 to a 0.20, the court must impose five days jail time. Mandatory jail for Manda- a first offense. If it, it, that's depending on how high the, how high the wow. blood alcohol is. So, so is the, a lot of what you do then trying to get that alcohol level down? Certainly, through? yes, yes. Okay. Sure, because if it's a 1-4, then you're, you're out of the jail time. <laughs> right. And it, unless you can beat the case altogether. And then if it's a 2-0 or more, there's a mandatory 10 days in jail. Wow. And these are mandatory. And when I say mandatory, it means jail time. It doesn't mean home incarceration. It doesn't mean a work detail or something like that. And it's is a, there, like, do you have, like, early release provisions? Because in, in Canada, if you, you know, get sentenced to jail, you get this statutory release, it, which is it, early. It, only, yeah, we had that in Virginia, but not in mandatory jail sentences it must wow. be it must be incarceration so you do the full 10 days you have to do the full t- now how you do that is is is, is uh, there's some discretion a judge can send you to jail on the weekend so if you got five days you you'd pull the two and a half weekends of right. jail time okay. and most of the time that jail incarceration is with other individuals or criminals if you have um, that are in a sim- similar p- position. So you're not usually oh. thrown in with the so felons <laughs> and the axe murderers. You're like a, a, in a party of drinkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they don't encourage you drinking in, in jail. No, probably not. <laughs> um, and is it like, is it in, is there a special facility for those short jail sentences or do you just go to the regular? No, you go to the regular jail. And oh, sometimes wow. you'll be segregated within the, within the population. Right, because you don't want to throw them in with right, the really with, violent with the axe murderers yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> Are there too <laughs> many axe murderers in Virginia? Um, I, I wouldn't know. I, I deal with DUI <laughs> and not, 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 not the big murder cases. Fair enough. Um, so... Having seen these changes in the last you sort of about the legal system, what do you think of it as far as public safety? Do you think lowering the blood alcohol limit and do you think that I don't, enhancing I, the penalties I, is better for that? I, I think we're low enough. I don't think that if we, and there's a big push federally to drop it to 0.05. I don't see the advantages of doing that. Right. I think that that uh, then that becomes sort of ridiculous. Um, an 05 we're talking about for some people that's a half a glass of wine yeah you know for me <laughs> and, right and so um no i don't i don't see that um 08 is 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 is, is uh, fair enough I, I don't think that the, there would be any advantages to turning it down farther other than more criminals being convicted right. or people being if they're going to do that then they ought to lift the, the change it to some other type of offense maybe a civil offense do you have a big problem in Virginia of like overpopulation in the prison system? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that's true among the states in general. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we have talked. Uh, we we met at a seminar. That's where right where here. we are right now, yeah. um, and we've talked uh, a lot this week about um, the process of doing a trial and and bringing evidence into the trial. And it's very different in Virginia than it is in Canada. Do you want to talk a little bit about how a DUI trial well, goes? Yeah, from what I heard, it's, it's extremely different. It's in Virginia, 
Every state has its own procedures. I can only talk about Virginia. But it's a pretty black and white type of procedure. Um, uh, it's, um, it's straightforward. It's all kind of old-fashioned. It's kind of what you see on TV. <laughs> <clears throat> the, uh, the procedure starts with a warrant of arrest. After the warrant of arrest is issued, we have what's called an arraignment. Um, with all misdemeanors or, or charges that for which you could go to jail require an arraignment in Virginia. That's a procedure, a quick procedure, the judge is going to advise the defendant of his Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Okay. And will ask the defendant if he wants to represent himself, is he poor and indigent and can't afford counsel, then the court will appoint one, or if he's going to hire counsel. So that's the only thing that goes on at the arraignment. And at the arraignment, then the case is set for trial in Virginia. Usually what happens then, if the, if the defendant's going to hire an attorney, he'll go out and find one. The attorney does have a right to continue the first hearing right. case of it. And then you just proceed along with your with your discovery. You find out from the prosecution. Do you have like a, like a speedy trial statute or something like that about how long we, trial has to take do. place in? Okay. Yeah. And what's the timeline for about that? About 90 days. 90 days? Yeah. So from arrest to... If it's not, if it's not completed, if, and the problem in Virginia is that the, re, the re, speedy trial statute is more is more geared in 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 the felony nature. Right. Uh, misdemeanors is not as clear, and this and the speedy trial doesn't usually come into misdemeanor because right. we were fairly quick with doing that. I can't imagine like ninety days though to gather all your evidence, interview your witnesses. Well, I can get most of my right. evidence done within within that time. Wow. Okay. Um, it's and it, you guys do jury trials. We we do it on a circuit court level. We have two two levels of court. We have district courts. Or misdemeanors, and we have felonies tried in circuit court. Okay, but so we do have the right have of appeal. So if I try a case in a misdemeanor case or DUI in lower court and I lose, or I plead guilty to my client with my client, I can. I, we have a right of appeal in either one of those circumstances. And the case is tried de novo, which means it's tried anew. Wow. And so I can try the case actually twice. I get two okay. bites of the apple. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. But I'm sure by the second time, your police officer and your state lab experts and everything are pretty tired of you. Um, well, that's a matter of tactics as in, as for myself. Um, uh, if I'm going to try a DUI, if I know that I've got a good defense like to the machine that we we're talking about this week, um, I won't pull that out in district court. Really? Yeah. So you save it. You I'll save, save it for later. I'll save it circuit court because I'm much more comfortable in circuit court with that kind of evidence. If okay. I were to pull that out in district court and lose, the prosecution then knows what where my tactics what are, what, right. where my, what my ace is. Okay. So. And so is it often that you, you'll lose in the district court and then go to the circuit court, or do you win in district court a uh, lot of the time? I win a fair amount in district court. Okay. Um, I have, you have to know your judges. Right. Okay, so if I'm in district court and I know the judge is not going to listen to my defense, that's another reason just to walk in, plead guilty or plead no contest. And then go to the circuit court level. And then level. go to the circuit court level. That seems sort of like inefficient and a little bit of a, uh, a waste of court resources. Do you think? Do you agree? Or do, uh, do you like it better? I'm not interested in how it upsets the court. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I don't mean your, I, don't, I mean the whole structure of it. Like how the whole system is structured where you have basically you get two trials for one offense right um does the prosecution also have the right to go no to, no okay so it's only you that gets to do right. that no. oh wow they don't have the right oh, of i wish i had that 
they don't have a right of appeal with misdemeanors uh, from the district court to the circuit court. Now, at circuit court level, they do have the right to go to court of appeals. Wow. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. How can people get in touch with you if they get in trouble in Virginia? <laughs> I don't, you know, we have listeners all over the world. Sure. So. It's, um, you can find me at vatrafficcourtlawyer.com. Okay. Or at my phone number at the office at 804 355 1842. 804 355 1842. All right. And that is Joe, and he is in Virginia. And, um,. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you. So I just want to say a huge thank you again to Joe McGrath for taking some time out of this really interesting seminar to do an interview. Um, Paul, you listened to that and what do you what do you think? Well, I also talked to Joe a lot because it was so interesting. Oh, yeah. I started talking he was to him. The first he was one we of made. the first people we made <laughs> talk to when we arrived here. Yeah, I know it's fascinating. Their process is fascinating. The thing that really gets me is the the speed at which the trials must happen, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sort of the the unnecessary duplication. But the speed at which they must happen is such such a disadvantage in many respects because yep. very often we don't dig up the disclosure in a an impaired driving trial sometimes for months because of freedom of information requests or you know whatever else we're looking into there's no way that we can have the thing resolved in in that period and they of time. get so much more disclosure here like we've i mean from what we've heard you know they're like oh yeah and you just get this out of your lab records and i'm like are you kidding our lab will fight me tooth and nail for most things I ask uh, for. I, I know they've been satisfied for the longest time just to give us a piece of paper that says what they say was found in the well, we, we person's We did an analysis. Blood. It must be correct. Yeah, I know. And uh, we started, I don't know, six years ago, uh, digging into, uh, into the background of the testing. And ever since then, uh, it's been fascinating for us because we've sort of opened the lid on the labs in, in at least, you know, the the labs that we deal with in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Going to do so many FOIs when I get home. Yep. Uh, so we learn a lot. <laughs> but, say that now and the RCMP lab will be shredding documents. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know what's coming. Yeah, no, they don't <laughs> they know what's coming. They won't shred. They no. won't. No, they're pretty good. The um, They have their issues, but they're pretty good. Uh, they just don't want to give it to us <laughs> because they want it. They want to. I don't want them to like think I'm accusing them. They <laughs> don't want us to. Uh, they don't want us to actually call into question any of their their no. process, and and that is a concern for and us. And you know what? I, the, the reaction that I, you know, when you started doing all these FOIs and and exposing all of these problems, you got such a huge backlash from police oh, and I was government. Hated. I was hated. And now for a while. I think the tides really shifted. I think they really appreciate that we're keeping this check, that we're, we're not trying to we're undermine the quali- them. Yeah. We're, we're the quality control. Exactly. We're, we're the, the quality QA. control. <laughs> and defense lawyers are the quality control. It's just that, you know, for some strange reason, people hadn't turned their mind to some of these things for the longest time. And uh, it wasn't actually, again, this was, a you know, an issue that talking to uh, to lawyers and um, in these sort of intense conferences uh, in the States is where we've learned most of that. Uh, there's things that are not very useful for us. You know, I'm not going to try and uh, be sexy for the jury, but <laughs> but, but uh, you so know the, the disclosure requests and things like that. Be sexy for yeah, a jury yeah. because I just that's not you know, my I, nature. I did, I did it just fine. The um, just, you know, in the like exercise, the, the idea of marketing yourself as a lawyer using sex appeal to me is it it just really diminishes the value of the good work that we do. Well, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Exactly. And uh, and and why would you focus on that in the first place? I, I guess, I, frankly, I, I would be less inclined if I was a client uh, 
um, to to think the per- take the person seriously. But you know, yeah, I don't, but maybe it works differently in places where there's juries. But I just don't see like I don't see a judge in a courtroom where there's a very serious trial going on responding well to sex appeal. What's really sexy in a courtroom is legal knowledge and skill and the truth. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, whatever. Sometimes the role of a defense lawyer is to... It's the, the, it's the truth we want to get out, yeah. is the point. It's, <laughs> we have a particular truth we're trying to have, for which we are trying to, that which that we are trying to reveal. But in any event, but I didn't, uh, I noticed that Joe was uh, was not capable of doing the sexy. And uh, he's obviously a very successful lawyer. He's a very smart guy, interesting fellow. Oh, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so besides this course... Something very interesting has happened with the Senate. And last week we talked about the Senate removing the random breath testing provisions from the impaired driving bill. Then this week, just yesterday, there was a vote uh, at the Senate about putting it back in. And um, that was voted. It was actually a tie vote, 38 to 38 and two abstentions. So um, they didn't put it back in. The motion didn't succeed. But there was also another amendment made to Bill C-46 that I think is really awesome. Oh, are you talking about the swag? No, C-46, the impaired oh. driving bill. No, C-45 what was the amendment that was awesome? I didn't, you didn't tell me about this. I know that the, the, the challenge to, the attempt to put that uh, random breath testing back in failed. I was glad to see how... Many times they mentioned you in the course of the <laughs> debates. You Kyla know, Lee. Someone on Twitter Kyla said Lee that she was in this. the Senate and they just kept saying my name. Kyla Lee. <laughs> it's like, Kyla oh. Lee. Kyla Lee basically dissected this and pointing at all the irrelevant case law. And I was like, yeah. There were a lot of lawyers. There were uh, lots of people. Well, smart. it was nice to get all those call outs in the Senate. That's yeah. true. Yeah. It might be the only time in my life. So I'll take it. Well, you're pretty aggressive on that point. I felt that you were the strongest on it. So I you know, was glad to see that you got the recognition in it. Thanks. Um, But as important to people's rights and protecting rights is the amendment that was made to remove the definition of of serious criminal offense, including, I'm not articulating this well, but changing the immigration laws so that an impaired driving conviction wouldn't render a person inadmissible to Canada. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic. We've had, um, you know, talking with all these lawyers in the States, one of the things that uh, always concerns them most is what uh, the implications will be for their clients if they'd like to come to Canada, if they end up convicted of some offense in the U.S. I think every time we met someone for the first time, they're like, so impaired driving is a felony in Canada and you can't go into Canada. It's like, well, it's not that simple, but yes. More or less. Yeah, they would never tell you outright what they're question was we were cross-examined each time they want first to know whether or not impaired driving was a felony in canada and is that why they can't go to the states yeah yeah. you're doing your best to try and explain it y'all um anyway the uh no this is something that uh that we you know regularly are contacted by partially because you're the canadian ambassador for the dui (laughs) defense lawyers association um, but yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear that they that they've done that. I'm I'm 
surprised every time they do something sensible. And I'm, I'm really I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I mean, that's the whole role of the Senate. So for know, a second but, thought, they're supposed to be the sensible I know, ones. but we always hear, and, you know, we're not usually this closely connected or paying such close attention to that's the true. progress of a piece of legislation. Never and to be actually watch, Yeah, exactly. And to actually watch it and to see the Senate doing what it's supposed to do, doing it, you know, relatively well. There's huge problems still with this legislation, but, you know, at least they picked their ground, stood their ground, and uh, on, on something that was, frankly, uh, nonsensical, they, you know, they've been the sober second thought there, and I'm, I'm happy to see it. I always get a crack, though, out of, out of sober in the sober second thought. <laughs> Just C-45 and C-46 being about, you know, marijuana and impaired driving. Um, but that's just me being 12 years old again. Sober. Yes. Second sober. Thought. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, there you go. Relatively I'm sober sure second thought. I'm sure made the joke before me. I'm sure they probably tested them all before they went into the Senate to make sure they were actually sober. Yeah. Field sobriety tests. <laughs> random yeah. testing random, in the Senate. Random Senate breath testing. Yeah. <laughs> could you actually, imagine? Actually, that's probably, that is an idea that most Canadians, I think, could get behind. I doubt it. Look, our country's first prime minister was a notorious drunk. That's a long time ago. Times yeah. have changed. Well, we still name schools after them and have statues. I, on I them expect and... my legislators to show up to the Senate or the House of Commons or the Legislative Assembly but sober. What about people like, was it Hunter Tutu who had an alcohol problem and, you know, had all those issues and then had to step down? Well, they should have some special provision that allows the odd person to show up drunk five times a year or something, but maybe not for a vote. <laughs> five passes. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, this is not well developed. No, so let's not is... put it into legislation just yet. But, no, uh, or ever. The backbencher bill. <laughs> Sober legislator bill. Um, An act to ensure the sobriety of legislators well in the legislative assembly. Anyway, I thought it was such a good amendment and it really strikes at those things that I talked about with Agnes Tong of our uh, Richmond office and the immigration. And I would love to see that change and love to do a follow-up if that aspect of, of um, C-46 is not rejected by the House and then passes into law. Indeed. Although, you know, there is, I think, a significant number of Canadian lawyers who might lose a lot of work. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, we're losing work all over the place. You know, the uh, cannabis being decriminalized, legalized, uh, is going to, I was, you know, I was just tweeting with uh, Kirk the other day. I was going to say, I yeah. saw the tweet chain you had yeah. with Kirk. Um, you know, it's, it's going to eliminate a lot of work for a lot of lawyers. I mean, I haven't had a grow-up case in a couple of years, but I used to run grow-up cases, grow-up trials fairly regularly, uh, and that went away. Um, and you how know, many PPT we saw, marijuana have we done? Yeah. Two? Yeah, not, not many. Uh, it's very few, actually. And, the, um, and, of course, in B.C., we saw, you know, huge loss of, uh, of work for lawyers when they changed the impaired driving provisions and, and started the immediate roadside provision. Uh, prohibition scheme that basically ended up uh, with um, with you being sort of the IRP lawyer and uh, some other lawyers who do it, but the uh, not the same amount of work. So it's been quite a change, and there's lawyers who are worried about the ICBC work uh, being not so lucrative, drying up, not being able to employ as many lawyers in that field. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting, you know. There's always there's always change. Uh, but the, the, the issue or the, the wonder is whether or not there's going to be new work with all the new cannabis legislation. And I'm, I suspect there will be some work. And I think it's going to be like, like we saw after 
IRPs came into BC, a shift, people are going to have to shift to dealing with regulatory offenses or regulate administrative penalties. Oh yeah, I think there will be some. Uh, and there will be lawyers who carve out their niche doing this, no doubt. Um, uh, I just don't know if it will be as much as some people hope. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I would imagine when it comes to cannabis impaired driving that, you know, the people who are the sort of regular players like you and me will be deep in there. That's half the reason we're here right now is because we wanted to make sure we understood and, and actually operated those instruments that, that yep. detect cannabis, THC, Delta 9, cannabinoids in the blood. I want to yeah. have tested blood before yeah. the RCMP. Yeah, so now that we've done it, uh, we're feeling a lot more confident <laughs> we did. about We it. tested blood. We got, know, you know, know. our know. accuracy was terrible. We created a, a, a passable calibration curve. Oh, our calibration curve was um, was not within the within the parameters of what's acceptable, but for pretty good. It wasn't pretty, within the parameters. Pretty good for us. Pretty first good for try. us. Pretty good for first us. First try, try, we yeah. had a 99% accuracy on one of them and an 85 on the other. Yeah, the 85 wouldn't cut it. The 95 was actually, or 99 was not, it should have been 99 point. It should be 995, and I think we had like yeah. 992 or something. Yeah, so we were close, but you we know. weren't perfect. But, hey, you man. know, that's our first time to run, uh, to run a, uh, you know, blood. So it's uh, we'll get more opportunities over the years. We're going to keep in touch with the people in the lab here, and maybe we'll yeah. talk to some of those people down the road. But in any event, uh, we should probably move on to the last thing that we wanted yes. to talk about. And, and it's a crappy topic to talk about. Yeah, it is a crappy topic to talk about. I was phoned by Fairchild Radio, and I gave an interview about it, and it's, it's a tough one. And you were on uh, Global, you know, Global yes. about it. Um, and uh, I think you were on the radio too about it. Did you discuss that one on a radio no. interview? No. Mm, no. Okay. All right. Well, the um, so there was a collision um, and a death, and um, it was a fellow who had accelerated his vehicle to a high rate of speed in a very short. It was like uh, 140 distance. kilometers an hour or something. Uh, on a Vancouver city street and uh, collided with another vehicle and uh, killed an occupant of that other vehicle. And so, doctor. Uh, yeah, a uh, well-loved doctor. And so this fellow was charged with uh, dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death and yeah. ended up going to court in Vancouver, ran a trial, and ultimately the driver was acquitted. And the reason for the acquittal, Kyla... The reason for the acquittal was the judge was not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the driving was dangerous driving. And it's it's such a horrible, I, I'm sure, like I feel for having to make that finding because of all the emotion involved in the case. But the standard for dangerous driving is way higher than people, I think, realize that it is. Well, it's a, that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I agree with the decision, but again, I haven't sat down and read it. I didn't sit through the trial. You know, I, I don't like to second-guess judges. I suspect that the government's going to appeal it. I know the standard is difficult, but, but this is the thing. Um, you know, if you're a lawyer listening to this, you, you probably know about this. If you're a, a layperson uh, who's just interested listening to this, what you don't know is what you look at it and you think might be dangerous um, you know, and lots of us would look at that and say, that's dangerous driving. Man, that's dangerous. What he's doing doesn't quite meet the legal test. And the legal test is higher, um, you know, presumably. Marked departure. Yeah, marked departure. Uh, presumably because we don't want to be handing out uh, criminal convictions willy-nilly for um, some bad driving. And we see mm -hmm. lots of bad driving 
that we wouldn't want to say, you know, we should be charging all of these people. I, I assume that that's the rationale behind uh, the legal test. The legal test, for the most part, makes sense to me. I'm having trouble reconciling it in this case. But, I mean, you you have, yes, high rates of speed, but behavior that's not unusual in Vancouver. You have people proceeding through an intersection and speeding up so that they don't miss the light. You have people using the curb lane to bypass other traffic that's backed up at a light, which happens every day in Vancouver. I do it, you do it, you know you do it. Um, and you have somebody who's driving a high-powered car that's capable of going those speeds with very little effort. Of course, there was a decision that was surprisingly similar to this, and I say, of course, not many people know about it. I can't remember the name of the case, but it was, a, it was actually it was a master uh, from BC Supreme Court was driving his Porsche uh, on um, on Burrard, yeah, past St. Paul's Hospital, and he, you know, the light changed. He passed in the right-hand lane. Uh, there was another, uh, one of the witnesses was a provincial court judge, Judge McGivern, who was parked in his Lincoln in one of the lanes that was passed. And the fellow continued on, um, moving along pretty quickly, and somebody stepped off the curb, he hit him and killed him. And the person who stepped off the curb had a extremely high blood alcohol concentration. Ultimately, um, the, the accused was acquitted um, in a fairly complex trial, but it was, uh, again, one of these situations where can you say that's a marked departure from the norm? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't speed up to 140 kilometers an hour to do that, but I would speed up and and go through an intersection in those circumstances. I do it all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've seen but people driving. And if on, the difference, if the thing is that you're cutting between me or you or any other driver in Vancouver is just the speed, that's not enough. If you saw somebody driving 140 kilometers an hour down Granville Street um, at one in the morning when there's almost no traffic and they manage to stop at every set of lights, you'd say that's excessive speeding. You wouldn't say it's dangerous driving. And I'd say as soon as they hit around uh, 64th, <laughs> there's going to be a VPD officer yeah. waiting for them. Well, you'd also say they're an asshole. Yeah, um, oh, for know, sure. Anybody who's driving like that but is being an asshole. an asshole is not a crime. Yeah, well, I always think it should be. Um, <laughs> bad taste <laughs> Everyone should be would have a criminal record, including me. Uh, not me, baby. <laughs> yeah, right. Not me. Um, <laughs> you would have one. Um, you must have had a moment in your life where you've been an asshole. I'm sure I've called you an asshole. I'm sure you, you have, and probably many others, but I was never trying to be an asshole. I was just trying to do my duty right, as a lawyer. Anyway, and you've probably been an asshole on the road. No, I mean, there's times I've been an asshole, but usually inadvertently, where I've, I've fucked something up and I right. feel bad about it, you know. Anyway, so dangerous driving, I mean, to sum up, I guess, um, is a very high standard and it's such a difficult thing. Like, even if this decision is appealed, it's going to be such a different, difficult thing to discern whether there's an appealable issue because it's such a fact-based inquiry into the driving. Yeah, I'm, I'm upset about the pressure that people put on, um, that we've, we've had from the... Um, victim's family? Well, I don't even think it was a victim's family. I think it was the friends of the victim's family or something like that. But the, uh, you know, petitions and things like that, I just think are, are utterly wrong, inappropriate in our justice mm -hmm. system. Uh, I have no problem with people questioning decisions, but um, it upsets me when I see uh, the attempt to pressure 
the courts. Um, and, and there's always the concern that uh, the court wanting to defend itself will go the other way. And usually I think all judges in, instruct themselves not to do that. They're all smart enough. If anything, they just sort of hunker down into I'm going to be fair. Uh, yeah. But I really don't like the. Um, I really don't like to see that, and I and I think it's inappropriate uh, to me. Again, I, I just don't think it's right to to be trying to pressure the court in that way. Well, that's a, a, a good segue into the end of the episode, Paul, because next week we're going to have another American lawyer on the show um, who actually is going to talk a little bit about their offense for dangerous driving and how speed factors into that. And I think it, it'll be an interesting place to pick up from, you know, the pressure that you put on government to make something that maybe isn't necessarily dangerous a crime just because some people are assholes. Well, I look forward to that because I wasn't wasn't in for that interview, but uh, interesting person you uh, managed to capture and get mm-hmm. to speak to. So yeah, uh, that'll be, uh, I look forward to that one. Perfect. Well, tune in next week then for another episode of Driving Law. Which will be partly from Arlington, Texas. And, partly uh, recorded and in Arlington, Texas. And partly recorded in Richmond, British Columbia in our Richmond offices. Not there. Richmond, Virginia. Not Richmond, Virginia. You'll have people from <laughs> Richmond, Virginia have been on. It's, it's, it's a an little... international <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, and if you want to reach us, you can contact us at uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com or call the office at 604-685. 885-8889 and ask for Paul or myself.